Angela, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. So for people who might not be familiar with you, or maybe they haven't heard about your clinics over in Virginia, would you mind filling them in a, a bit about who you are and all the amazing things that you do? Um, well, uh, like you said, I own a business. I co-own, um, founded a business in uh, Vir um, Virginia. We have one location in Falls Church, one location in McLean. We founded our uh, clinics called Advanced Kinetics Physical Therapy and Sports Performance back in 2015, right as I um, got out of working with the Washington Nationals. I spent about uh, seven full seasons working with the Nationals over a course of a span of 10 years. So had a ton of experience working with the overhead athletes in the baseball population. And then once we got out of um, working with the team, we decided it was time to open our own clinic so that we could focus more on sports rehabbing and do the kind of sports performance and rehab stuff that we wanted to do without the constraints of big corporate, you know, <laughs> hand yeah. ties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that a little too well, unfortunately. Um, but no, I think you bring up an interesting point there on overhead athletes. And that's certainly a unique population of athletes to work with. They're a little different than most, but how would you how would you define an overhead athlete, Angela? Well, you know, I think the overhead athlete is a very unique population and um it's not just baseball players. Uh, we see overhead athletes in in many different sports. So obviously baseball, softball, but tennis, um, swimmers, gymnasts, uh, volleyball players. You can anybody that has to do any type of activity in the overhead position is really what I would define as an overhead athlete. Gotcha. So that's a little bit more broad than just like baseball and football quarterbacks by the sounds, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yep. And yeah. Because these athletes are, they're doing, um, a, they're doing activity with their arms overhead. And mm -hmm. when you load the arm overhead, you get into a whole new realm of uniqueness when it comes to treating the shoulder and the upper extremity. What kind of changes do you see in the shoulder in overhead athletes like you know in your baseball pitchers or baseball players versus like your swimmers who have been swimming for 10 plus years or your you know lifelong volleyball players do changes occur in the shoulder as a result of you know that adaptive stress or well i don't know that that uh, i mean eventually changes do occur what we define in these athletes you aren't going to find an overhead athlete that is a very tight, immobile person. It's more the uniqueness of the type of athlete that actually gets into these sports. That's what makes it very interesting, especially to me, because you take a swimmer, for instance, you, you're not going to find a swimmer that lacks range of motion. You know, they have to have excessive range of motion and get into the craziest positions with their shoulders and their upper extremities to perform their sport. Same thing with baseball pitchers. You're not going to find a baseball pitcher that's immobile. It just doesn't happen. They they can't be tight. Um, either their body adapts as they grow up and they have changes and ossifications that happen because of the stress that they go under from, from being a little kid and doing the sport, or they're just a very mobile person. And that's what makes them so effective in doing the sport that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a very good point is essentially the joint 
or the movement pattern, I should say, is going to adapt to the stress that's placed on it. So if you need to get the arm overhead or you need to you know, establish some extreme of external rotation for a throwing motion, then your body is going to find a way to make it happen. And it's interesting because I feel like in general, when it comes to the overhead athlete, we focus on or the majority of PTs focus on the simple things, the straightforward things, and not so much the extremes, right? Like, oh, hey, we have all this external rotation range of motion. Let's do external rotation strengthening. But we, for some reason, just avoid that end range position where we're most likely most vulnerable uh, from our overhead position. Right. It's, you know, the uniqueness of the the overhead athlete is, is really focused on, and it really has made me look more at the specific biomechanics of how they perform their support and how the biomechanics of how the shoulder needs to, needs to move in that sport. Um, and because these, because these athletes are already categorized as hypermobile or unstable, when you get an athlete in the clinic that has pain, that's unexplainable, one of the things we failed to do is to really look at that end range motion and to really look at the joint biomechanics and where um, the glenohumeral joint is positioned and how the alignment of the joint is is affecting where they're potentially causing problems and getting pain from. Tell me so a there's little. Really, there's really a really unique balance between stability and mobility in those athletes, and um, biomechanically, there's a lot of their pain is just a biomechanical pain. Because sometimes they'll come in with with absolutely negative findings on MRIs and X-rays and and still have problems. Yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. And uh, do you feel that do you feel like there's a gender component to this? And what I mean by that is, in particular, I'm thinking back to some of our discussions we've had earlier this year on baseball players versus softball players. And how you know adaptively after a baseball pitcher throws you know in a game you're going to see decrease in cuff strength, so decreased stability, but you also see a decrease in shoulder range of motion where there's some evidence to suggest that in the female athlete, in particular softball players, they show that decrease in cuff strength after activity, but they actually show an increase in range of motion or an increase in joint laxity uh, instead of a decrease in range of motion. Do you see something similar yourself? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, the differences between, I mean, between the male and female, um, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the study you're talking about with the female, not showing decreased range of motion. Um, I'd have to look at that, but it's with baseball players and especially pitchers in specific is where they mentioned that loss of strength and that loss of range of motion. Um, that's pretty evident just because of the, uh, the sheer velocity and the stress that the arm goes under during the pitching motion. And for females, it might not show the lack of range of motion quite to the degree of a baseball player, because I don't think females get into the same position, the, the extreme of external rotation, like a, a pitcher is going to go into 180 degrees of external rotation, and they're going to pitch you know, anywhere from 90 to 100 miles per hour over the course of X amount of innings, X amount of um, pitches. And females then playing softball have a completely different pitch they have a completely different mechanism um, of which they pitch. They just don't get to that extreme, which is probably why that research shows that it doesn't have um, the loss of range of motion. And I don't honestly think that that loss of range of motion is really um, as comparable to position players as it is for pitchers. Right, right. Yeah, because pitching is essentially 
a very high stress repetitive activity over and over and over again. Whereas if you're playing yeah. shortstop, you know, you might field 20, 25 ground balls on a heavy day, um, yeah. you know, heavy workload day. That's not a whole lot of throwing when you compare it to someone throwing a hundred plus pitches at, you know, very high velocities or very specific spins or that sort of thing. Um, do you think that there's similar, um, you know, acute changes in the volleyball and swimming population as well? where if you looked after activity, you would see a decrease in strength and like a kind of adaptive decrease in range of motion afterwards? Um, I think, I don't know about the volleyball player because I think, you know, like like you said, with shortstop versus pitcher, they just don't have as many repetitions and the and the load and the velocity. Um, they're developing power overhead and, and spiking a ball or serving a ball, which is a, a different kind of motion. There are a lot of similarities between tennis and um, the tennis serve and tennis players and baseball players um, correlating a lot tennis players just to a way lesser degree than, than the pitcher and the, and the, the baseball player. But Swimmers are, are, are a whole different animal, in my opinion, comparative to baseball players. I find that swimmers are generally way more um, hypermobile and unstable compared to, to baseball players. And they, um, the, the sheer volume of their practices, you know, swimming four to, to 5,000 meters in a practice and the, the speed and, and the sprinting they have to do in terms of uh, meets and stuff. So Swimmers are a very um, unique population. I find just they're just a little bit more unstable than the baseball player, which makes it even more challenging from a rehab standpoint. I definitely agree with that. And I'm just thinking about some of the swimmers I've been rehabbing recently. And, you know, some of them have faced some unique challenges in particular. And I've kind of contemplated to myself why that is. And one of the thoughts that I've been kind of circulating in my mind is there's been a lot of focus on developing these arm care programs and arm care routines for baseball and softball. And we have on base you now for baseball and softball. Um, and I haven't really seen as much of like a arm care focus for swimmers. I haven't really seen as much of like a even emphasis on strength and conditioning and getting out of the pool for that matter for swimmers. Um, so I, I can't help but wonder myself if some of the some of the issues we see in the swimming population could be prevented, at least in part, by some type of formal training and injury prevention type regimen. Yeah, I agree. We, um, you know, with all the work that we did with the, with the team, we decided to put together an injury prevention program for overhead athletes. And that's one of the things we run out of our clinic and our sports performance side is that we we treat, you know, any overhead athlete into that group and help with arm care because the, the, the mechanics of the joint is what it is. Like anatomically, we are what we are, whether you play baseball or whether you swim or you do tennis, it is what it is. And if you've got any biomechanical alterations and you've got you know, decreased in the arm is overhead and you have an unstable shoulder, the shoulder is going to, is generally going to work the same way. You're going to have a high eccentric load. You're going to have breakdown. You're going to have soft tissue dysfunction, you're going to have loss of, of stability. And so that arm care program can, um, you know, universally be used for all of our overhead athletes with tweaks to more specific biomechanics when it comes to like their individual dis dysfunctions and their individual mechanics per their sport. So um, we definitely press highly for our swimmers to go doing the injury prevention stuff, just because of the, the, the volume of what I don't know how it is in your area, but you know, the volume of what these, 
winter swim teams do in the four or 5,000 meters a day and two practices a day. And, um, they, they just need, they just need better arm care. And some of the teams I do see do, you know, land workouts or, um, you know, they have programs that they give them to do when they're not in the pool, but the likelihood of those athletes actually doing them on their own is probably slim. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you might be onto something there, Angela. It's like, you've done this once or twice in the past. Um, so walk me through in general, some of the details in your arm care program, Angela, you know, is it the kind of thing where we just gotta, you know, beef it up and kind of go all boulder shoulder construction here and just make a, you know, stronger, bigger joint or muscle surrounding the joint, or is it a little bit more targeted and specific and, you know, where should, where should, you know, strength coaches, PTs, chiros, that sort of thing, where should they balance the line between just general strengthening and physical prep and more targeted specific things? Well, I, I'm at a point in my career where generally I see a lot of these overhead athletes that come in and have been to, you know, I've been to two PTs. It didn't work. I've been to two different doctors. Nobody can figure out what's wrong with me. And I, I generally find that, you know, we don't use very good clinical reasonings with this, with these athletes. We tend to treat them like any other patient or any other, you know, athlete coming in the door, which it's just not, we just can't do that because I mean, we know the shoulder is generally an unstable joint, right? It is the stability of the joint is solely dependent on soft tissue. It's dependent on the capsule It's dependent on the cup. It's dependent on, um, the co-contraction of all the dynamic structures or scapula. There's, there's just a lot of soft tissue that, um, go, plays into the stability of that joint. And we don't, we don't, address the soft tissue the way that we should be with these overhead athletes, you know, because it's unstable, because they perform an overhead motion, because they load the joint in overhead motion, the muscles break down over time and they develop a lot of dysfunction and a lot of trigger points and a lot of, um, you know, tenderness and a lot of trigger point referral. So, um, we've done a lot of work with them in terms of looking at the soft tissue um, we've looked at the soft tissue under ultrasound, we've needled under ultrasound, we've done a lot of that work. And we've generally have found that once we've cleaned up the soft tissue dysfunction and the breakdown of the ecent that happens because of the eccentric loading that is constant in their, in their, in their shoulders, we have a better success in developing strength and developing power back into the joint. Because if somebody is, um, unable to activate the, the, the muscles the proper way, and they have pain with resistance, a lot of PTs just tend, oh, well, we just need to strengthen you more. We just need to load you more. But when you load them more, they just get more painful. And then the cycle continues. We're not getting rid of the soft tissue dysfunction and, and clearing out the pain in the actual muscle to, to make it healthier, to make it strong, to have the potential to get stronger. Um, and a lot of, a lot of pain in, in their shoulders, especially if they come back with a clean MRI, clean X-ray, um, you know, failed PT here, did this or did that, and they can't seem to get better. It's because they don't clean up the soft tissue. They don't get rid of that dysfunction and um, make it so that when they do the resistance, it's pain-free. Um, and along with that becomes, you know, you know, what we talk about is joint centration and, and their joints are not centrated properly when it's in an overhead position. And we need that centration of the joint to co-contract all the muscles. And if if they've got a forward head and they, they've got a rounded shoulder and the humeral head is sitting in an, an anterior position, there's not going to be good joint centration to get really get that proprioceptive feedback that the joint needs for the stability. Um, it's 
it's just solely dependent on that proprioception and that soft tissue stability. So um, we work a lot with them to restore that mobility and restore that stability back from um, either the joint position or the soft tissue. And I, we just find that, that they just have much, way more success with it. You just brought up so many amazing points, Angela. So first off, from an overall quality standpoint, what is the quality of the soft tissue that we're dealing with? I think that is a very high, huge piece. And as you mentioned, it is often missed. How often do you see an athlete come to you after failed PT where, you know, all they did was three by 10 ER, IR with the band, maybe a few uppercuts if they're lucky, um, and maybe a little bit of like scap retraction work. And, you know, we're, we're not going to even bother touching protraction in traditional PT because it's all about down and back after all, right? Right. Well, they don't even they don't even address the scapula half the time. That's not even part of the equation. Right. And then, you know, your soft tissue work, um, maybe maybe an e-stim, some ultrasound and maybe a massage if you're lucky, um, if you want to call it that. Um, and meanwhile, it's like all that time we've got, you know, very painful, irritable knots of tissue that continue to get more and more flared up. And we need to have some kind of tissue remodeling occur. And it's funny you brought up needling and some of the other manual techniques. And I know you do a lot of manual work yourself. And I think there's so much value in that. And it's often overlooked about, you know, hey, just taking 5, 10, 15 minutes to use those tools and open up a window for you to load tissue and make changes afterwards, I think is incredibly powerful. Uh, I'll say I've had a lot of success this year in particular uh, with starting with isometric loading. Uh, I think there's a growing body of research to support ISO loads for tendon remodeling and tendon health. And I found a lot of benefit to that from bicipital tendon issues to, uh, you know, rotator cuff tendon issues myself here, starting with some type of ISO load. And you can vary the position, you can vary angles, um, but I've had a lot of success with that. Um, I also really like your point as well, just kind of taking it a step further on, you know, not just stopping there and hitting home on, you know, the more important pieces of rehab, which is not just looking at the shoulder, but looking at the whole person. Um, I'd imagine that in your arm care programs, you're not just treating the shoulder, you're probably looking at, you know, hip movement, core mm -hmm. stability, and all these other pieces as well. Yeah, we have a whole just kinetic chain component to the overhead athlete because, I mean, you know, the 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 biggest thing we address initially is, okay, where's their pain coming from? Really kind of reasoning through exactly what the pain generator is because, you know, even if they come into my clinic and they say they have a labral, labral tear, I don't know, that means nothing to me because 99% of overhead athletes have labral tears and that does not mean that that's where their pain is coming from. So I think A, number one is really honing in on where that pain is coming from is the pain. Yeah. They may have pain, you know, in the anterior shoulder and they may call it bicep tendonitis, but you know, that's a primary referral point from the infraspinatus. And if they're a pitcher, I'm going to the infraspinatus first. Right. Um, so identifying the pain and correcting where the pain's coming and getting rid of the pain is my number one goal from there. It's okay. Well, why, why is that load all of a sudden becoming a problem? What is, what has changed? Is there a mechanical change? Is there a growth change? Is there, you know, a kinetic chain, chain issue? Is there, you know, a change in the mechanics that they aren't able to do because they don't have some lack of mobility or stability somewhere else in the chain that they can't get to that mechanics? 
So there's a whole kinetic chain component. You know, we want to, we want to look at all the different components in terms of, you know, depending on their sport, what do they need to do as a pitcher? What do they need to do as a swimmer? Where are they lacking? If they're lacking core control, they're going to have more stress on the shoulder. If they're lacking hip mobility as a pitcher, they're going to have more stress on the shoulder. Um, if they're, if, you know, if their arm is coming up late and they're in their late, when they, when they're, when they're going through their pitching mechanics, that's going to put more load on the shoulder. So there's a lot of components to look at all the way up and down the chain to make sure that, it, you know, if your athlete needs to do X, Y, and Z for the mechanics, well, can their body support X, Y, and Z? Can they get into the motions that you actually want them to get into? Um, and that's kind of how we approach the pitching mechanics and the mechanics of the sport. Like we're looking at the body. Okay. Your coach wants you to do this. Well, your body's not supporting that. We need to get your body to do that. So we're looking at hip, we're looking at core, we're looking at knee, we're looking at ankle, we're looking at spine. We're addressing the whole, the whole component, um, the whole kinetic chain when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to. And um, to your point on pain and what we were talking about earlier with how a lot of, you know, PTs will just kind of strengthen, strengthen, strengthen. It's amazing how much stronger something will be when it doesn't hurt. Like mm -hmm. I've seen like 20 plus percent improvements on individuals when they come in and we test their ISO strength, you know, on like a Tindac or a similar device, a dynamometer, when they're flared up and painful versus when they feel really good. It's amazing just how, how strong that pain response can be in inhibiting strength. When you were mentioning about the importance of looking globally and looking at hip, looking at core, looking at all these other movement pieces, are there any kind of cut values that you like to see or kind of like assess for when you're looking at these things? So for example, if you're looking at a baseball pitcher, do you want to see like above 40 degrees of hip internal rotation? Do you want to see like, you know, at least a four plus out of five core stability? What kind of like objective cut scores do you base things off of? Well, you know, that's interesting. There is really no evidence to support basic, you know, cut scores and measurements that you want to pass for a baseball player. There's really no return to sport um, criteria for, for an overhead athlete. It just doesn't exist. Um, there's been attempts, but there really isn't anything that's been consistent and proven in the literature that's going to say you have to ha have X, Y, and Z. Um, part of what I did with the nationals is I was there for two weeks during spring training and I had to, um, do an overhead screen of all 40 man roster. So I took every guy on the 40 man roster and I did a full body, um, overhead screen. And we took, looked at the literature and said, okay, we definitely want, you know, a total arc of motion for the shoulder. We definitely want internal external rotation measurements and, and hip measurements and strength measurements and spinal rotation and core strength and all the things. Um, and, you know, do we look at, look at all the measurements and look at all the data over the course of, you know, six or seven seasons that we collected it. And there is no, there's no correlation. There's no correlation like across the board that you says you have to have 40 degrees of internal rotation. It's really individualized because in the, in the male athlete, you're going to get such a huge variation in terms of, especially with the hip mobility, a huge variation in terms of how much internal external rotation they have. Um, I mean, the literature will say that like internal external rotation is really important. It's not correlated the same way as say the total arc of motion in the shoulder is in terms of predicting injury risk. But we know that you need to have symmetrical internal external rotation of the hip in order to get to the positions you need for the, the motion of pitching and for the motion of throwing. So it just depends on the, I mean, and it depends on the individual athlete. It can be, you know, 
you know, John Doe can have 20 degrees of internal rotation on his left, but 10 degrees of his right. So what am I, what am I, what is my goal? It's not a standard 40 degrees because that his normal isn't 40 degrees. His normal is 20 degrees. So our goal is to make him symmetrical, make him back to his normal. And so we really individually have to look at each athlete and, and do what that athlete can do, because not every athlete is going to get to the same amount of mobility that um, across the board when it comes, when it comes to them. So, um, you know, we, we tried to, to collect and run all the data and do all the thing. And it just, there was just no correlation. There was just no standard that we could come to. The standard was within the individual athlete. Right, right. And that makes it even more difficult, I'll say, in the question of how do you know when to treat something or not treat something. So, you know, you might have an athlete come in and you notice they have tight hips and you notice they're having shoulder issues and it might be impacting their throwing. But how do you know when to address that hip mobility versus not address it? And ultimately, I think, as you mentioned, it has to be an individual basis. There are going to be times when someone comes in and they have very limited hip mobility and you free it up and all of a sudden life is good. And there's going to be other times when you chase that, you know, that rabbit hole for three, four weeks and nothing changes. And I think that's where the importance of trying to find ways to kind of determine where you should kind of, you know, what what rocks should go in the jar first, um, you know, really comes into play because you don't want to waste someone else's time and you want to be effective at what you're doing you know mm -hmm. you want to have a good reputation for treating athletes and if you're just kind of trying things because well you noticed it's tight so making it move more is probably going to help or you noticed it's weak so making it stronger is probably going to help then ultimately i feel like you're doing the person in front of you a huge disservice right and i think a lot of that has to come you have to work with your athlete and you have to listen to your athlete you have to understand them and understand their body and understand what their goals are and where they're coming from. And, you know, I often, anytime one of my athletes comes in, I want to see a video of either, you know, them pitching or them throwing before they were injured, you know, times when they were healthy. And then, you know, okay, do you have a video from last spring when you start started feeling pain? Um, you know, and so you're, you're looking to see, and I also, I just find that super helpful because if I see what they used to look like when they were healthy and how their body moved, it gives me a better sense of where my target should be. What is the difference between when they were healthy and, and now when they're injured, where did their compensation start? Where, what are, what are they lacking now? What's the change in that mechanics that, that led to that. And, and that helps guide me as a PT in terms of, okay, where do I start with my treatment? Right. Where, where am I going to go? What, what am I going to attack and what's going to be the most bang for my buck in terms of, of their rehab to help them? Definitely. How do you take that approach and apply it to say the volleyball player or the swimmer? You know, are you looking at changes in swim stroke pattern or changes in how a volleyball player gets up overhead to say spike a ball or something? Yeah. I mean, you can, you, I mean, you look, all, most parents these days take a thousand videos of their kids <laughs> playing sports. You, they can find you a video, right. And you can compare videos of before and after and how they're moving. And it's sometimes just in the way that they move. Maybe, maybe this is like a kid that just started playing volleyball and never was really taught how to like properly approach a ball and how to like, and maybe they don't have the proper range of motion to get to the point where they need to. So now we're, now we're trying to get them better range of motion, trying to get them better stability to be able to do it because, you know, you have kids that go through major growth spurts and, and, and hit puberty and all of a sudden have, you know, changes in their body and 
coordination issues and, and strength issues. And now they have power and now they don't have mobility to assess that, to be able to properly load that power, right? So there's there's all kinds of things depending on the age of the athlete, the maturity of the athlete, um, their, their individual situation. And I think that's, you know, where we as PTs, I always, when I educate my PTs and I teach and stuff, I always say, look, your subjective exam should be the longest part of your, your evaluation, right? You're spending the most time talking to your patient, really breaking down all the things, finding out the history, looking for potential, you know, hypothesis of what could be causing the problem, right? And that involves looking at a video that looks involves looking at a video that can give me just as much information as putting my hands on a patient. So it's, it's just really being able to take that extra step and, and listen and, and really try to delve in and figure out where, where the breakdown is happening. That's become a very common theme on podcast episodes for us this year is the importance of the subjective. And some people have proposed 80 to 90% or sometimes even more of your examination actually relies on that subjective component. So it's interesting to hear that echoed even more. And it's interesting to me as well, in the sense that like we see, we see a lot of focus on objective metrics, especially in the overhead athlete population, you know, certain scores on certain things or upper quarter wide balance. And, you know, I'm not going to say they're not important, but, you know, if someone scores 20 versus 23 on any measure, what does that tell you about them as opposed to a detailed history of yeah. when things started and every step along the way? Um, so I love that point. Uh, that you brought up there, Angela. And I, I'm also a little curious too. I forgot to bring it up earlier. You mentioned about racket sports and how cer certain sports like tennis are also considered overhead to a certain uh, a certain extent there. Does your approach change much when we're working with a racket-based sport like tennis or you know, pickleball, the latest craze? Or is it pretty <laughs> is it pretty similar? I mean, it's similar. The bottom line is, look, these athletes are, you know, regardless of whatever motion they're going through, whatever, you know, load they have on their shoulder, is it with a racket or is it a bigger ball? Is it a smaller ball? What is the shoulder doing? Where's the lack in control? Where's the lack in stability, right? Are they, are, is the mechanics of the joint incorrect? Is there some breakdown in the kinetic chain? Is there loss of scapular controls or loss of core control? I mean, this is all going back, you know, listen to the subjective. You can observe, I mean, you can even just get a lot of information just observing their posture, right? If I have an athlete that comes in and is sitting in a poor posture and their scapula is protracted, anterior tilted, the humeral head is sitting anterior out of the joint. Like I, there's no way they can be performing their sport in an optimal position or an optimal, having optimal load or, and proprioceptive feedback to, to co-contract the muscles in the way that it needs to co-contract to stabilize the joint to prevent it from dislocating. Right. Because that's essentially what a baseball pitcher does. Your shoulder is every pitch trying to prevent itself from dislocating. So if, if, if the mechanics and the, the posture and the strength, I mean, if it's not there, it's not there, regardless of the mechanics of the sport. The easy part is to fix the mechanics once you correct the, the biomechanics of the shoulder and get the shoulder functioning in a, an optimal position and an optimal load. Then you look at the racket. Then you look at the way that they're moving. How are they, you know, approaching the the strike or how are they approaching the the the, the tennis serve? What how are they going up? Or do they have enough spinal extension to get the the racket behind to get on top of the ball? Like those all little things can come towards the end, but none of that matters. You can correct the mechanics, but if you don't fix the shoulder, it doesn't matter. The mechanics aren't going to, you're still going to have pain in the shoulder, regardless if you change the mechanics. Right. So, right. you know, number one priority for me is 
fix what we need to fix in the shoulder, get that functioning better. And then let's look at how the mechanics are, are causing problems to that shoulder and then fix that. Right. And as a lot of people want to go right to the fun stuff and fix all the mechanics and, Oh, well, I rubbed your shoulder a bit. So you don't have pain anymore. Oh, great. Let's just do your mechanics. But then three months later, they come back and they're in pain again. Right. 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 We didn't, we didn't, we didn't go back to the basics and look at the basics and start at the basic, you know, bottom principle of the shoulder and then move out to the fun, cool stuff. But the basics don't get as many likes on Instagram, Angela. No, they don't. And those, P- <laughs> those PTs aren't that successful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you're onto something there. And um, I'll, I'll even take it a step further. I love the, um, the point that you brought up a little bit ago too on proprioceptive and neural input. And I've gone as far to say that to a certain extent, all PT is neuro PT. And I think unless you're addressing proprioceptive input and some of the neuro type strategies at some of these different joints, especially the shoulder, um, and if you're not addressing that, you're doing that person in front of you a huge disservice. And I, um, I realize I forgot to mention that earlier, but I think I think there's a lot of value in the proprioceptive input type mm-hmm. things. And I don't mean just putting KT tape on the shoulder, but like actually dig in deep and teach someone how to, you know, determine where their body is in space and what it's doing. Yeah. I mean, they really need to learn how to reposition the hum- glenohumeral humeral joint and the humeral head. They need to learn how to reposition the scapula, PNF, isometrics, you know, uh, load, joint centration, close connect chain, all that stuff is huge employment. I mean, Look, I'm a, I'm a big manual therapist, but, you know, as my treatment plan goes on, it becomes less manual therapy and way more load, way more strength. And then that's just how it needs to be. You know, our, our therapy is only as good as what we do in terms of exercise afterwards and how we re-educate the body afterwards. And, you know, my athletes may, you know, towards the end come in and I may be just, you know, they may just need a couple spots of dry needling and a little stretch. And now they're just spending an hour loading, loading the area and learning how to, how to move correctly and how to strengthen properly. And that requires, you know, actually strengthening in the overhead position. Cause a lot of PTs fail. They just want to do, you know, the, the throwers 10 and the internal external rotation at zero. Nobody does any strengthening up here and loading up here where this is they, where they need to perform. This is where they need to, to, actually strengthen and learn how to move in the overhead position. So we spend a lot of time and we take the time. That's part of the reason why we, we opened our own practice is to be able to spend the time and not, you know, get that athlete back to hundred percent, not cut them off at 80% because towards the end is, you know, this, the load up here is really important to be able to, to do that and to and strengthen in that position. Um, and so all that neural read we do and eccentric training and, um, close connect training and all that stuff happens, um, for those overhead athletes, it's a must, they have to get in and load in those positions. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And I completely agree that that is so often missed because when I think general shoulder rehab outpatient PT clinic, I think, you know, some band resisted rows, some shoulder extension, some ERIR, maybe some ERIR walkouts and maybe like a Blackburn progression on a table. That's it. Like, that's what I think of. Um, And as you mentioned, that overhead component is completely missing there. Um, It's also interesting to me, too, how some of these little gadgets that have developed um, are really like so trendy to the point where like people will attach their whole rehab to it. So like, you know, I've seen PTs before where their whole shoulder rehab is body blade. And I'm not going to say the body blade is a (laughs) terrible tool, but I don't think that's the only thing we're going to use to get a shoulder back. 
Um, oh, trust me, the, the amount of gadgets I've seen come in and out of the clubhouse over the course of the years that I was there from all the different players was fascinating, <laughs> to say the least. Has there been any one in particular that's actually impressed you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I am very open to anything and I will always try something. And like with my players, I was always willing to learn and understand what it is that they're doing and what the method is and, and how it works. And, and, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of different things. I've learned a lot of different, you know, tools in my toolbox, very eclectic approach to, to these athletes with different approaches from, you know, cause they come, these athletes come from all over the country and all kinds of different philosophies and treatment plans and uh, approaches and stuff. So I've taken little nuggets here and there, but you know, I don't think any one thing is the end all be all. And that every single patient and every single athlete of mine is going to respond to that one thing. You have to have, you have to have options. You have to have tools. Not everyone is going to, is going to um, buy in and then going to fare the same way with the same treatment approach. Right, right. It's not enough to just have a big toolbox. You actually have to know what tool to use and how to use it. Um, when to use it. Yeah. And um, to kind of bring it full circle to a quote that was told to me a few hundred times, I felt, by a certain individual you and I both know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree 100%. 100%. And Angela, this has been a great chat about a lot of unique overhead athlete considerations as it relates to rehab. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or anything that we might have missed today? I mean, I would say when it comes to the overhead athlete, um, you know, don't don't always go for the big, fun, glorious, you know, dynamic, you know, heavy fad type stuff. I think, you know, I always get asked, um, how do I get into sports PT? How do I get to do what you did? And, you know, my, my biggest response is just be a good PT, understand the basics, do the basics very well and have very good clinical reasoning skills. Like if you can change an athlete's pain, they're Biden, like they're your patient, they're not going anywhere else. If you're, if you're doing therapy and it's just no change in there and you're just doing the repetitive motion it's not, it's you, the patient's not going to get better They're You're not going to be happy in your career. Um, just do the basics well and, and be able to reason through and, and, you know, have the curiosity to find out what the cause of the problem is. You know, don't just treat the symptom. You go after the cause and you're going to make a bigger impact. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Do the basics well, because if you can't nail those basics, you're not going to have anyone walking in the door. And if you are going to get fancy and cute with it, know when it's okay to get fancy and cute with it and not just jump right into it. So yeah. I love those points. Angela, for people who want to find out more about you or your clinical practices, where can they find you at online? Are you are you part of the MySpace generation like Mike Lair? Or... <laughs> um, I'm not part of MySpace, but I you can go to my website, advancedkinetics.com. My Instagram is Angela underscore Gordon underscore PT. Um, there's a bunch of resources there. I also um, have resources. You can either go through my website. I also have online education at uh, sportsacademy.com dot, um, or thinkific.com. So, um, I mean, you can actually just Google my name because I there's a lot of information. I actually got a job working on set with Wonder Woman by a physio Googling, Googling my name and finding me in DC. <laughs> 
That's incredible. I love that. I love that. We will link to all of that in the description below as well. So if you want to check out more about what Angela is doing or what the team at Advanced Kinetics is up to, we will uh, we'll make that very easily accessible for you there. Angela, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you. Thank you. It was great to talk with you. Hey everyone, I want to take a second and tell you all about AliRx. AliRx is a at-home food sensitivity and gut health testing panel. You order online and then receive and complete your test at home for food sensitivities. You then receive a custom report online through your member portal and then receive personalized recipes and supplements that are catered to you based on your food sensitivities. If this is something that interests you, you can check out the link and description in my bio and you can use the coupon code capital D, capital B, R-A-U-N, capital R-X, so D-B-R-A-U-N-R-X at checkout to save yourself 20%. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.